No, there's something dynamic about a baptism Sunday. There's nothing like that, isn't there? It's a great, great morning. I love the celebration in the room. You know, if you're watching online, we had baptisms in this service. We'll have them in all five services today. I'm told over 30 people are getting baptized here at Heights over the course of the day. What a great week. God is indeed on the move. You know, my, my youngest daughter turned 25 this last week. This is the part where you say, Pastor Mike, there's no way you could have a 25-year-old daughter. Her sister's turning 30, so that's going to get even worse next month. Anyway, we were having dinner with, uh, with her this last weekend, and like we like to do, we start reminiscing about her childhood and growing up and all the stuff that we did together. And we asked her, you know, what were the significant moments for you uh, as you were growing up in our home? And, and she loves doing that too. So we spent 20 minutes thinking through that. What struck me as I sat there listening was I was totally unaware of about half of the things she talked about. I had no clue that they mattered that much to her. I don't remember saying the things she said I said. I don't remember being in the places she said we were. And so without even knowing, and I sat there nodding like I did. You know, I'm a dad. I mean, if we, <laughs> pretend if you, don't, if you don't know, pretend. So I, but it did dawn on me that without realizing it, the things we were saying and doing mattered a whole lot more to her than we realized. And, and what struck me about this whole idea was in this idea of storehouses, we've been talking about how important our hearts are as, as storehouses, that what we say comes out of our hearts, and that's been the theme of these three weeks so far. What I noticed was the words came out of my heart and reflected what was stored there. That's what we've been talking about. But we're also surrounded by people who have hearts that are storehouses. And we're all harvesting words and experiences from other people and carrying those in our hearts. So the words I said, the words we say, go into the hearts of others and become what is stored there. And that reality should give us pause. That reality of the power of our word should make us pay attention. And that's why it's going to be the focus of our last week here in our storehouse series. This is the fourth week. So far, we've had several themes. We talked about the fact that the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So we should watch over it. We should guard it. We should cultivate it because what we say comes from what's inside. We also saw that words are the raw materials of a construction site and that with them we are building into the hearts of others. We'll talk more about that today. We also saw in Ron's message a couple of weeks ago that there are sometimes, because in our world we are so surrounded and even bombarded by words, there are sometimes we really should just shut up. Maybe that's the best step to take. You know, the day he preached on that, I was hosting over in our chapel service. The, the first hour, we have a, a, an alternative worship experience, smaller and quieter, over in H2. And I usually host there. So that day, as I dismissed folks after Ron's sermon, I, I gave them a benediction I think I will never use again. I said, brothers and sisters, let us go forth and let us shut up. It was too good. I, I, I couldn't not say it. I'll never have that opportunity again. And then, and we'll talk more about that today as well, by the way. And then last week, John pointed out that with God's help, we are supposed to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. So those are the ideas we've heard so far. Today, we're going to wrap it all up and, and tie it all together with this idea. As I said, we are, as human beings, constantly harvesting the words of others and putting them into the storehouse of our heart which makes our words incredibly powerful because other people are harvesting from them. Powerful in two directions. They can be powerfully destructive. 
The book of James, uh, as has been mentioned in this series, describes our tongue, the source of our words in, in Scripture, that's the image, as a, a flame, a little fire that could set an entire forest ablaze, that our words can be powerfully destructive. And as we've been watching the, the devastation in the Pacific Northwest and Northern California, we, we get that. As we think back to our own history here, the sad history of Prescott and Yarnell, we know that some of you spend your lives protecting us from those out-of-control wildfires. And, and the scripture dis, uh, compares our words to that. And yes, sometimes the words we say can be that powerfully destructive. But on the positive side, they can also be powerfully constructive. They can be powerfully helpful. One of my favorite proverbs by the way, the Proverbs, I think it's at least 50 verses in Proverbs that talk about the tongue and our words. Here's one. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. I love that one. I love that image. The right word at the right time from the right person received in the right way is so valuable and so beautiful that the proverb describes it, compares it to apples of gold in settings of silver. So if you've got the negative side, it can set a forest on fire, or the positive side, so valuable that they're like jewelry. And when you put those two together, there is one other proverb that combines them. Oop, clicker didn't get it there. Here we go. The tongue has the power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 18 is going to be the focus of what we talk about today because it contains both of these ideas. The power of life, the power of death. There are life words and there are death words. And that's why the big idea for today is this. Our words can be, I should have put our words will be, stored as life or death in the hearts of others. Let's choose them wisely. Lord, would you help us to do that today? Would you speak through your words so we can weigh our words? Would you teach us because we're listening to your spirit? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, my goal today is to look at a pretty familiar passage of Scripture from a little different lens. I want us to take the lens of Proverbs 18, that there are life words and death words, and using that as the lens, I want us to look at a passage we've probably heard before. If you've been around church for a while, you're aware of what the Bible describes in John chapter 8. Because in John chapter 8, there's a woman who's having probably the worst moment of her life. There's a woman whose deepest, darkest secret has not just been revealed but dragged into the public square and declared in front of a crowd. This is, of course, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. But instead of just looking at the events described in that chapter, I want us to look at them from the lens of Proverbs 18. What did she hear at each step of that process? What were the death words and what were the life words? And how much difference did they make or would they have made if you were in her shoes? Look at John chapter 8 with me, and we're going to start reading actually at verse 2. And what we're going to see initially is the words of her accusers, which of course in this case she no doubt received as death words. I want you to ask yourself, which of these have I heard in my life, and which of these have I spoken? That second question might be a little painful at times. Let's look at the passage. John 8. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And here comes the moment. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Can you imagine? And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Let's stop there for a minute and just ask ourselves, what did she hear as she was made to stand in front of that crowd? What did she hear as these accusers said this to Jesus? Well, I think a few things come to mind. If I were her, I would have heard this. Your secrets are public now, and we despise you for them. I think she heard, you are worse than the man you slept with. You are uniquely evil. Because remember, adultery takes two, right? Where's the guy? He wasn't worth bringing in front of the mob. You, lady, you're the one. You're the worst. You're the one we're going to use right now. In fact, if she understood that this was a trap, that she was the bait in a trap, she might have heard, you're nothing but a tool in our hands, and we will use you as we see fit. And then lastly, I think in literal death words, she was saying, you deserve to die. That's how bad you are. And we will see to it that it happens. Can you imagine what it was like for her to hear these words of her accusers, these death words being thrown around with her standing there, the object of them? Chances are good, although I don't think any of us have had this exact experience, but I bet we all on some level kind of get it because we've all had accusers, haven't we? We've all had people throw words like stones at us. Now, in our day, I doubt if they were literal stones, but boy, sometimes words hurt and bruise and damage just as much as rocks would. What were your death words? Maybe you heard that you're worthless, that you're good for nothing and never will be. Maybe you've heard that you're stupid and no one understands why. My daughter once had a teacher who had taught her older sister, say to her, why aren't you as smart as your sister? Can you imagine? Maybe you've heard that you're ugly. Maybe you've heard that you're unlovable. Maybe you've heard that if people knew your secrets, they would despise you. Or maybe worse of all, God knows your secrets and he despises you. Sometimes these accusations come from outside, voices, people who we look to, people we admire, people whose words matter, and that's why they hurt even more. Sometimes we don't need anybody else. We're fully capable of accusing ourselves in this way. Sometimes the voice is your own, throwing these verbal stones at you. And it's awful to hear those words. It's also awful to speak those words. So after asking what death words have you heard, let me ask this harder question. What death words have you spoken? For whom are you an accuser? That one's not as much, that one's pretty hard to think about. I had to think about it this week because I was overhearing my wife talking on the phone with one of our girls and she gave some advice and it was really good advice. And a few minutes after she hung up, I mentioned that to her. I said, hey, dear, that was, I'm really glad you said that. That was, that was good advice to her. And she said, oh, well, thank you. And I didn't think any further of it, but about five minutes later, she said, I'm really glad you said that. Because sometimes I think, you don't think much of the advice I give to our girls. She didn't have to say that, so I knew it was percolating. And I have no idea how long it had been percolating. But in those few minutes, I had a 
shocking realization that I had become my wife's accuser. And she doesn't need any more. She's got plenty. And I'd added my name to her list. And it was hard to hear. It was hard to realize what I'd done. And I knew enough to realize you can't argue with that. And I hope we all know you can't argue with that. If you hear that from somebody, you can't argue. Because if you argue, then the other person just hears, you're too dumb to know who your accusers are. And you become an accuser all over again. So I had to own it. I had to recognize it. And I had to ask my wife for forgiveness for being her accuser. And now I have to commit myself to making sure, moving forward, that I don't waste a positive thought about her by failing to turn it into an encouraging word. Let me say that again. I don't want to waste a positive thought by failing to turn it into an encouraging word. I've done that too much with her, and I won't do it again. From whom do you need to ask forgiveness for death words? Between services, I got an email from a man who said, Mike, I left the last service and couldn't wait to get to the parking lot to ask forgiveness from my wife for being her accuser. Between the first and second service, I talked to somebody who knew she had hurt someone in this church before and bumped into that person in the lobby, hadn't seen them since, and knew she had to take advantage of that moment to say, I know my words hurt. Is there someone you need to take that step with? I know I do. Okay, let's go around the corner now. This is, you're depressed and I am too. But we're not going to stop there. Happily, we're not going to stop there because the passage doesn't stop there. We don't just hear death words in this section of Scripture because Jesus sooner or later is going to talk. And guess who brings the life words? I think you already know. But it doesn't begin with words. That's going to matter in a second. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, this is one of the mysteries of the Gospels, and if you read scholars about this passage, they'll be guessing what he wrote, and there's all kinds of speculation. I'm starting to wonder, are we making a mistake by thinking about what he did rather than noticing what he didn't do? Because what he didn't do was respond. What he didn't do was speak right away. He could have. He's God. I'm sure he would have done it well. Might he be modeling for us the fact that we don't always have to talk? As Ron said a couple of weeks ago, let's shut up. Let's recognize that sometimes, literally, silence is golden. And we don't have to speak. We don't have to respond. Jesus didn't. Could he be modeling for us the fact that sometimes silence is not just a good idea. It's a great idea. There was a time when I, 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 worked, I did something better with my wife than the story I just told. Okay, I'm going to salvage my reputation here with my wife. Uh, when we were engaged, <clears throat> we were getting ready to, to set up our home. And of course, you're having fun and thinking what, what dishes and what furniture and all this stuff. Uh, and, and we knew, because we'd known each other for a long time, that I was not a shopper. I'm a buyer. We got any fellow buyers in the room? I don't shop. Who, who likes to shop? I go to one store, look at what's there, take the best thing, go home, and I'm happy, right? 
And that can work with a shirt or something like that, but something you're going to use for 20 or 30 years? No. We both knew she was the shopper. She would compare. She would find the best stuff. So we decided that, okay, honey, I I told her, you go and shop. You're better at this than I am. I will come to see the plates you choose, and I will love them because I love you. Does it work that way all the time? Not so much, because what we discovered was she finally, after weeks of looking and visiting stores, she went to Broadway, Broadway department store. Anyone remember that? Yeah. And she took me, uh, she found the right, she brought me there. She took me to the, the uh, plates, I guess what it was called. <laughs> and she showed me the plates she had chosen for our new home. And they're floral and they're pretty and there's flowers and leaves. But right away I noticed something. There's roots. There's roots on the plate. And Latin. Latin roots. <laughs> what in the world is going on on these plates? Somebody put a weed on a plate. That was my first thought. And I thought she was kidding. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> but some husbandly reflex within me told me this is a good time to shut up. So I, but I came this close to saying, you're joking, right? Where are the real plates? All right. Can you imagine the heart of my bride to be crushed by my assumption that, that she was joking about her long search? No, instead I just, I didn't say anything. So she stood there with, and after a few seconds, she realized he's not saying anything. (laughs) And she asked me, do you not like him? And I said, well, uh, there's a weed on the plate. (laughs) This has remained in our home a a lesson learned. It's a Mars-Venus moment, for one thing. It's seeing things through different lenses and different eyes and learning how to resolve it. By the way, I'm sure there's people here who have these plates. If you love them, please don't write me an email. But you got weeds on your plates. All right, I just got to say that. All right. So at times, that silence that Ron mentioned a couple weeks ago, the silence that Jesus Christ modeled in a key moment of that entire story is the path we should take. I'm not talking about silence as manipulation, the silent treatment. I'll show you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not talking about that kind of silence. Let's not go there. I'm referring to silence as wisdom, silence as care, as maturity, as listening, because you can't listen while you're speaking. So silence ought to be a tool that we have in our life word collection. But after the silence, she did hear some actual words from Jesus. When they kept on questioning him, see, they, 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 they must have repeated themselves. Again, this poor woman is hearing. First, Jesus says nothing, but the bad guys fill the silence with more death words. So they keep questioning him. He finally straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. The woman still standing there. Don't miss that. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Let me stop there first. Put yourself in her shoes. Usually when I preach this passage, I go right away to the thoughts of the mob and the crowd as they hear Jesus at these conditions. If you want to be the first, here's what you have to be. Perfect. Sinless. And we usually go to the realization, oh, no, we're all sinners. But for now, let's not talk about the mob. Talk about her. 
She was still standing there. What did she hear when Jesus said, let the one of you who's without sin cast the first stone? I think she probably heard several things. I think she heard that I'm with you. I'm on your side. I stand between you and the mob. I know you and I will protect you. Because she had to see the results of his words. And then when they're left standing there alone, he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. (laughs) I'd call him sir at that point too, I think. Then neither do I condemn you. Okay, hear that again. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What other life words did she hear? First off, I think she heard, well, look around. Your accusers are gone. I've driven them off. My words made them disappear. Your accusers are no longer here. And then when he alone met the qualifications he had set to throw the first rock, when she was standing alone with the only man in the crowd who had the right by the words of Jesus to bash her head in because he was without sin, rather than do that, he says, I don't condemn you either. Can you imagine? This woman thought her life was going to end in five minutes. She was waiting for the hatred to show up as rocks, literal rocks, bashing into her skin and, and bashing in her head and putting an end to her life. And instead she hears these life words, then neither do I condemn you. And then he ends by saying, go now and leave your life of sin. In that statement, I think she's hearing, your life matters. Your life should change. Sometimes life words are corrective. Sometimes life words point out things that should be different. He didn't say, no, you're fine. Go sleep with whoever you want. No, he said, you know, you've, you've been living in sin. That ought to change because your life matters. You know how empowering that is? For someone to realize that my life matters. The decisions I make make a difference. The choices matter, and and, and I'm going to be a different person now because Jesus just told me to. And and if she did follow Jesus, and later on, like all the disciples, she received the Holy Spirit. So not only did she have the command to change her life, she had the power to change her life. And that's freedom. She wasn't stuck in the life she'd been living and wasn't obliged to continue down a path that she was not out ashamed of. Those are life words also. So what she heard was life words from Jesus. And I said when we started, I was going to ask, what death words have you heard and what death words have you said? Those were the hard ones. Now, let's go on to the happier side. What life words have you heard? What life words have you heard from Jesus? Can you imagine Jesus standing between you and your accusers? Can you imagine Jesus saying, I'm not going to let them hurt you. Can you picture Jesus saying, I know your secrets, every one of them, the one that just came to your mind right now. I know it. I know you to the core and I love you. I could condemn you and I choose not to because I was condemned in your place. Can you picture Jesus saying, I bled for you? That's how much I love you. Can you picture God the Father saying, you're my child. 
You're a prince, princess in my kingdom. I adopted you. There's a place at my table for you forever. These are life words. These are good words. They're the words we find all through Scripture. They apply to people who have bowed the knee to Jesus. I hope that's been your experience because once it is, these words become yours. If that isn't yet your experience, please make it soon. Come talk to me. Talk to other people around, friends. But once we bow the knee to Jesus, these words are ours. And the life words that he pronounces over us change us because our hearts are storehouses. And when we store these words, these life words in those hearts, that changes everything. That's why King David said, your word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I don't want to sin against you, Lord, and your good news helps me to live a life you're pleased with, to live a life that you smile about. So let's hear the life words from Jesus. But I also have to wonder, what life words have you heard from other people? Do you have people, I hope you do, speaking life words into your storehouse? And if you do, what do you do with them? I began collecting mine many, many years ago, decades ago, literally collecting mine. I decided early on in my 20s that if somebody took the time to write me an encouraging note, because I so loved that verse already, apples of gold and settings of silver, that I would keep them. This is 35 years of notes. I call this my happy file. Such a sophisticated name. (laughs) And many, many times I've been glad that I have this, including last night. Knowing I was going to mention it today, I began reading through it. Couldn't stop. Must have spent an hour and a half. Went to bed, woke up at 3 a.m. this morning thinking about these people and the ways they built into my heart and, and gave me things to store in my heart. I got up again and read more. So I've been up since 3 o'clock. Not a good idea on a preaching day, probably. <laughs> we'll find out tonight. <laughs> Let me take you on a little tour of a few of the notes in my happy file. This is an envelope I was given last year, dated March 12, 2017. I received it in Kinshasa, Congo. You'd sent me there to teach Congolese pastors how to preach God's word. I preached on a Sunday there to a church full of, I know, people who live on a couple dollars a day in some cases and not a whole lot more than that, maybe. As I left, uh, someone approached the car I was in and handed me this envelope with written on, in French on the front. It says Galatians 6.6, 6, a verse which says in English, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And inside the envelope was 350 Congolese francs. They take it in a love offering for the preacher. The rich white American, because I taught them for 40 minutes, that was Africa, it was an hour, (laughs) okay, they gave me the equivalent, I went online last night to double check, equivalent of 25 cents. If you think that's what this money is worth, you're not listening. This is not 25 cents. This is apples of gold and settings of silver, and I'm never going to lose it. My first Sunday here at Heights was very much like today. It was a baptismal Sunday, and to my amazement and pleasant surprise, the pastors of the church invited me to do the baptizing on my first Sunday here. 
I was already pleased and more pleased when I found out I was going to have the privilege of baptizing three generations of one family. I'd baptized mothers and kids before, or fathers and kids, but on that day there were three, a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter. First time experience for me. Those folks had become dear to me, and six months later, those three ladies sent me a Christmas card in which each one of them sent a little paragraph reflecting on what that day was like. So I received life words from Margaret and Jennifer and Bethany. Apples of gold, settings of silver. It was a time in our time in France when Murph and I were suffering greatly. It was... We got terrible news one day that Murph's brother back here in the U.S. had committed suicide. We got that news at 8 o'clock at night. We had to be on a plane the next morning at 6 a.m. We returned to France exhausted from that tragic experience, only to find a few weeks later of our church of 40, three families decided to stop worshiping with us and did so in a way that communicated rejection and, and uh, caused a lot of hurt. And in that moment of pain, we reached out. We got well, good grief. What are, what are we going to do? And we wrote our former college pastor who actually performed our wedding ceremony, who I hadn't seen at that point for many, many years. And the pastor, Mick, although we had email at the time, took the time to write a six-page handwritten letter in response to our SOS. His letter included these words. Without your wounds, where would your power be? It is your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men and women. <clears throat> it's harder to read than it was the last two services. I don't know why. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. Was not inconsistent of this man. Two weeks ago, I got a Facebook message. I haven't seen them now for probably 25 years. Got a Facebook message from his wife, and she said, We just want you guys to know we were just talking about you, and we think Mike and Murph are amazing. Life words. And when I, when I left our previous church to come here, uh, the staff bought me a freaky little children's book. <laughs> With googly eyes. <laughs> All right. They even changed the name from my toy book to my creepy toy book, which is really appropriate. And on every page, members of the staff wrote usually very tender and kind farewells to us. It's an eight-page book, so there's quite a little bit of room to write. Some of them had a little fun with it. One lady wrote, oh, Mike, you will be missed, but you'll always be watched. Always. <laughs> Love, Martha. Apples of gold. Settings of silver. Just two more brief ones. This goes back to when I was a junior high pastor in 1983. Let me do the math. 35 years. Received this note from one of the junior hires. You've helped me and many others grow. You've devoted a lot of time to us. You've got a real cool wife. And I hang on to that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then Karen wrote this note on which he added this P.S. It's a full-page letter, but the P.S. says... You're my favorite person that's not related to me. That was cool. Why would I throw those away? These are life words. These are, and I've gone to these files. I've, I've, I've needed it over the years. And, and, and today it's powerful for me, as you can tell. These matter. 
And what struck me was, folks, there were people whose notes reappeared. People who appear several times in my happy file. Because they're good at this. And they take the time. One of them was a, a little lady in our French church named Paul Pomarez was her name. I think I've got six or seven of her handwritten letters in there, including one of them that informed us after we left France to come back to Southern California that she was dying of leukemia. And happily, I was planning a trip to Europe and was able to swing by and see her before she passed and to tell her how much her life words meant to us on some very challenging days over the years. Friends, our hearts are storehouses. These fill the storehouse. And I hope you've developed the habit. If you haven't yet, it's not too late, I hope. Start collecting these things. They are apples of gold in settings of silver. If you receive them, cherish them. What life words have you spoken? Are you one of these people who's just good at this? Verbally or non-verbally, you're good at expressing appreciation. You're good at giving encouragement. If you are don't diminish it. Don't think it's insignificant. It's huge. It matters. Be one of those people whose letters appear many times in somebody else's happy file so God can use you and your words and your instincts to say, she might need to hear this right now. He might need to hear this. Verbally or written, it really doesn't matter. I like written because I can keep it in a box. <laughs> but sometimes it's words, and that's okay. Verbal words. Which ones have you spoken? If you have, celebrate it. But the more important question, what life words do you plan to speak moving forward? How different would your life be if you committed to giving life words? That you said, Lord, by your help, I'm going to erase death words from my vocabulary. How different? I can't resist going here. How different would our social media life be if we made that distinction? I tell friends jokingly, but half-jokingly, when I want to get discouraged by the state of American Christianity, I read comments on articles and blogs online. I read Facebook fights between Christians going back and forth about politics and other stuff. And I ask myself, who thought this was a good idea? Tell you what, someone had a committee meeting somewhere. Let's have a public fight about stuff nobody but us understands, using words that don't sound at all like Jesus, and let's do it in public. There's a plan. Ugh. It's a lousy plan. What if our social media life was full of life words? What if we made it a place of encouragement and a place of uplifting? And a, ah, If we've got hard things to talk about, let's talk about them. That's part of life. Jesus said hard things to that woman. But don't throw it out in a tweet or a Facebook post. or a, There's so much pride in that. I've got to stop talking about that. It's a, it's a sore point for me. So what if, how different would our social media life be? But more importantly, more close to home, how would your family life change? How would your interaction with your spouse, if you have one, or your kids, if God's given them to you, or your parents, or your siblings, how different would those interactions be if you said, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to minimize the death words and I'm going to maximize the life words with God's help. How different would your friendships be if you were a fountain of life words to those people who call you friend? And one of my favorite characters, probably my favorite New Testament character, is Barnabas in the book of Acts. 
And one day, hopefully, I'll, I'll get to talk more about him, but I just love his name. His actual name was Joseph. He was a Levite from Cyprus, but he's not known that way. He's known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What a nickname. Can you imagine being called because of your life, because of the life words you give, because you're not one who throws rocks at people verbally, but what you give gives life? If you were that person, wouldn't it be great for someone to say, you remind me of Barnabas. I'm going to start calling you son or daughter of encouragement. What a goal. What a privilege. What a big idea. Our words will be stored as life or death in the hearts of others. Goodness, friends, let's choose them wisely. Lord, would you help us to do that because we mess up? Would you forgive us for the death words that feel like they inevitably come out of our mouths? We know it's not inevitable. We know through your spirit you can change us. But forgive us for the words that have done damage, for the times we've become accusers of people who look to us for more. Forgive us for that and help us to change. Help us to become givers of life words, an oasis of rest and refreshment to those around us. Lord, work in our hearts so that the words we speak do build up and encourage and don't damage. Lord, that's how you are with us and we're grateful for you. Help us to be that. Help us to be like you for other people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.